As I stated earlier, our text this morning comes from 1 John chapter 4, verses 1 through 15. The Apostle John wrote this letter to Christians in Asia Minor during the latter half of the first century because he was concerned about the influence of false prophets and teachers on his congregations. These false prophets and teachers, they were openly challenging and rejecting the apostolic truth claims about Christ's incarnation. And these conflicting teachings led some in the church to question and even deny the full humanity and the full divinity of Christ. To combat these heretical ideas, John set out to argue that the central tenets of Christianity are grounded in the testimony of the Holy Spirit concerning the person and work of the Lord Jesus, and that their evidence in the lives of Christians and their adherence to sound theology and in love for the brethren. When these areas of a believer's life are in harmony, then Christians, both individually and collectively as the church, experience joy and we are reassured of their salvation, even though they are still being renewed and sanctified. Our passage, verses 1 through 15 in chapter 4, specifically focus on how testing the spirits within the world and loving one another are evidence of the inward aid and work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Ultimately, this inward aid, this work of the Holy Spirit compels us to believe it compels us to live out. It compels us to confess that Jesus Christ is the Son of God to a watching world. So with this context in mind, let us reread our text this morning from John, chapter, 1 John chapter 4, verses 1 through 15. Hear the word of God. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and is now in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God himself is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and that he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. 
And we have seen and testified that the Father who has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us go to the Father now in prayer. Father, we ask that you would meet us now. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would come and fill our hearts, fill this room with your presence. And Lord, that we would not just be hearers of your word, but doers as well. Lord, make us a people after your own heart that seek to test the spirits, that seek to love one another and have a desire to confess that you, Jesus, are the Son of God and the Savior of the world. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I had one of the strangest, yet most exhilarating evangelism experiences occur to me during the summer of 2006 when I was in Jordan for one of my archaeology digs. It was late one night. I had already retired to my room when one of the security guards had come and knocked on my door. You see, the excavation team that I'm a part of, we occupy a grammar school that is out of session during the summer. And this school, it's part of a larger compound which has a wall and a gate and a guardhouse. And we live there because of the proximity of this place to the country of Syria. So our team is always protected by a Jordanian security detail. So to get a knock on the door after hours from a security guard was quite surprising, a little scary. When I asked what he needed, thinking that there was some type of problem, he stated that someone had come to the gate asking for me. Thinking that it was one of my young male Muslim workers that we hired to dig in the summer, I redressed and went down to the gate, fully expecting to see, to meet someone that I had already knew, to see a familiar face. However, when I arrived at the guardhouse, all I found was a boy, no older than 12, who I did not no. When I asked this boy how I could be of assistance, he asked if my name was Jeff and if he could talk to me. When I pressed him about how he knew me and what he wanted to talk about, he said that he had heard from others in the village that I liked to talk to people and that I knew things. Intrigued by his response, I accepted and suggested we walk to the center of the village where I would buy us some sodas and we could talk. After buying sodas and sitting down on the curb of the street, I asked him his name and where he was from. He said his name was Sultan, that he was from the Saudi Peninsula and that he was visiting family. I did not recognize the family, nor any of the names of the people that he mentioned, so I was curious how he knew about me, because there were no obvious ties. After a few more minutes of chit-chat, this 12-year-old boy launched into a very serious discussion about spirits and my views on them, particularly about jinn. Now, contrary to Walt Disney World's portrayal of genies living in a lamp, rubbing it, and getting three wishes, genies or jinn within the pre-Islamic and Islamic traditions are believed to be real spiritual beings with invisible bodies and potentially dangerous. You see, within old nomadic Bedouin traditions and Islamic traditions, jinn have the ability to inflict injury or possess humans if provoked. While more could be said about their origin and nature and influence within these worldviews, 
Suffice it to say, this young boy, Sultan, believed in them and was terrified. After expressing his beliefs and fears, he then turned to me and asked if I was afraid of jinn too. To his surprise, I said no. And when he asked why, I explained to him who the Holy Spirit was and that I could not be possessed. He listened intently as I then further explained who each of the persons of the Trinity were, the hope of salvation offered to him in Jesus, and then I re-emphasized the part of the Holy Spirit's role as a protector, guide, and teacher. After talking for approximately an hour, I prayed for him, and then we said our goodbyes. I never saw him again that summer. I've never seen him since in any subsequent visits, and no one in town could tell me who this boy was or vouch for his story. So as I said, strange and exhilarating. Now the point of recounting this story is not to regale you with missionary tales like those of Hudson Taylor, but to highlight my own personal example of testing the spirits. In this example, the person of the Holy Spirit was actually being contrasted against the belief in other spiritual beings. In John 4, the testing of the spirits is more about examining what is biblical versus false teaching. But in reality, these are the opposite sides of the same coin. What you believe matters. So in either case, whether the testing of spirits is more experiential or theological in nature, the response from us as God's people, as Christians within the church, is the same. As Christians, the weapons of our warfare are to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised up against the knowledge of God, and we take every thought captive to obey Jesus Christ. For Sultan, he needed to hear how the Holy Spirit, as a spiritual person, was greater than jinn, who had invisible bodies. But for others that we come into contact with in the Western world, who deny the existence of any spiritual reality, they also need to hear that their modern agnostic views, or spirits, are just as false. My friends, we live in a world where belief in Jesus Christ is challenged and rejected by those around us, both outside and even inside the church. Some of you know people struggling with the apostolic claims about Jesus. Some of you may be struggling with the apostolic claims about Jesus, wrestling with what is true and false, what is from God and not from God. And if this describes a friend or even yourself, do not be disheartened. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and of love and in self-control. And if you are a Christian, even a Christian who struggles, there is hope, my friends, because you've been given the gift of the Holy Spirit, the spirit of truth. And because you have been given the gift of the Holy Spirit, the spirit of truth, we as Christians are calling, we are equipped to test the spirits, to love one another, and to confess that Jesus is the Son of God to a watching world. If that's true, though, well, what is our starting point? And where do we begin this morning? Well, I have three points I want to share with you this morning, three gospel truths I want to communicate. And the first point is this. Because we've been given the Holy Spirit as Christians, we are called and equipped to test the spirits. So look back at the opening verse that the Apostle John writes. He says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, 
but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. Now in the time period of the Apostle John, as it is today, there are many competing beliefs about the origins of the universe, the nature of the divine, the relationship between the spiritual and natural worlds, the knowledge and acquisition of salvation, and the internal destiny of mankind. Some of these competing beliefs came, out, came from outside the church in the form of Greco-Roman pagan religions and philosophies. Others came from inside the church, from Jewish and Christian theologies which contradicted the apostles' newly minted orthodox teachings on Christ. Gnosticism, though there are many variants of it, generally espouses that salvation in the first and second century was achieved by a special revelation that awakens the knowledge of the divine or the spiritual within mankind. And Jesus was either the embodiment of a supernatural being who brought these spiritual mysteries to earth, or was just merely a human who was enlightened and taught his disciples the same. Another heresy, Docetism, and there are variants of that, espoused that Jesus only appeared to be flesh and blood, and that he was really an apparition or an illusion, or that Jesus was man in the flesh, but there was another being, Christ, who entered Jesus' human body and then only abandoned him at the crucifixion. When in the first and second centuries, where these heresies were born and taught, this is what the church was facing although there's still debate of how much the New Testament literature is actually engaging these heresies. Interestingly, forms of other heres or, or, I'm sorry, forms of these heresies, such as Docetism, continue on in our modern period. For example, the Quran states this, that they said and boast, we killed Christ, Jesus the son of Mary, the messenger of Allah, but they killed him not, nor crucified him, but so it was only a made to peer to them that way. And those who differ therein are full of doubts with no certain knowledge, but only conjecture to follow, for of a surety they killed him not. No, Allah raised him up unto himself, and Allah is exalted in power. That's a modern form of docetism. So with all the competing beliefs, with all the views about Jesus that are promoted by so-called prophets, religious teachers, and learned people, whether heresies from the early church period, whether they're heresies from non-Christian modern-day world religions, or from modern secular worldviews, how do we test the spirits? How do we do that? Well, John tells us. He tells us in verse 2 and 3. He says, By this you know the Spirit of God. By this you know the Holy Spirit. Every spirit within a person that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and is now in the world already. Within these verses, the Apostle John, he sets up a how-to Christological test for his first century audience as well as for us. And the test, it's quite simple. Do you, does your spirit believe in and confess that Jesus Christ is from God and that he actually came in the flesh? 
to parody the language of the day, to use the language of the day, this is an identity issue. And John is conveying to his audience using the most simple, clearest theological language possible that only spirits who accept Jesus as fully human and fully divine are true and to be trusted. So if you believe and confess this and you are from God and the spirit within you is the spirit of God, the Holy Spirit. But if you do not believe and confess this, but you deny it, then you are not from God and your spirit reflects the spirit of the Antichrist. My friends, the, the simple truth is that the linchpin of Christianity, it hangs on the incarnation of Jesus Christ and its connection to his life, death, and resurrection. And this is the, the framework, the theological grid in which all spiritual and intellectual queer, inquiry and questions and views must be weighed against. So when someone says to you that Jesus Christ is a great teacher and a great moral example, but not from God, like many Western worldviews assert, this spirit is to be rejected. When someone says that Jesus Christ is a bodhisattva or an avatara in Buddhism or Hinduism, who is an enlightened person who taught compassion to save suffering people and help them reach nirvana, but is not divine, this spirit is to be rejected. When someone says that Jesus is from God, but he is only the first created being and not fully divine, as Jehovah's Witnesses believe, this spirit is to be rejected. When someone says that Jesus Christ was not begotten, not the begotten Son of God, and was instead begotten in the flesh from Adam in the Garden of Eden, and is thus not divine, as Mormons or Latter-day Saints profess, this spirit is to be rejected. When someone says that Jesus Christ is a great prophet who performed miracles, who was taken up to heaven and will come again to judge the living and the dead, but is not divine, as the Islamic faith professes, this spirit is to be rejected. And the list goes on and on and on and on, since there are many false prophets and spirits to test. The incarnation is the dividing line. But why does the Apostle John command us to test the spirits? What is the purpose? Well, he tells us in verses 4 through 6. He says, Little children, you are from God, and you have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not Listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of, uh, the spirit of error. You see, the, the purpose of the testing of spirits, it's to hold fast to the true faith and to confirm that we know the spirit of truth, again, more plainly, the Holy Spirit. And if we, if we know the Holy Spirit, if we have the spirit of truth, then we will accept the message of the apostles and we will testify to it. And it will protect us from falling into deception, heresy, or wandering away in myths. It protects us from our fallen nature, from the sin of the world, and from the one who is in the world, Satan. It protects us from being overcome, as well as to allow us to unveil false prophets and to expose the spirit of error for the benefit of ourselves as well as for others. And so, my friends, 
even if you're struggling, if you believe in and confess that Jesus Christ is from God and that he came in the flesh, then take heart because you are, you are from God. You're not from the world. You know the spirit of truth. You have the Holy Spirit. You have the scriptures. And because you have the Holy Spirit, you have everything that you need for life and godliness in the Lord Jesus Christ. You are sealed to him. He will mature you in the faith. You will be able to test the spirits. Because these things are indicative of us, of the church, of you and me, then we then move on to the application of the testing of our faith, where we demonstrate love and service to one another. Which leads us to our second point, and that is, because we have been given the Holy Spirit, as Christians, we are called and equipped to love one another. Look back at verses 7 and 8. John opens again with beloved. He says, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In addition to examining our own and others' theological beliefs and views about Jesus Christ, loving one another is also tied to the Apostle John's how-to Christological test, except now the focus is on applying what we believe about Jesus' identity because of the witness of the Holy Spirit and the testimony of the apostolic message. You see, the, the natural outflowing, what comes out of a Christian, if we know the spirit of truth, is that we love one another. For the Apostle John, truth and love, they cannot be separated because God is not only the source of all truth, he is also the source of all love. Hence why verse 8 says, God himself is love. In both of these attributes, these characteristics, they are an essential part of God's being, his personage. And because they are an essential part of God's being, they are also to be essential parts of our character and being as well. Truth and love, they go together like peanut butter and jelly. They go together like milk and cookies, peas and carrots, coffee and donuts, or whatever food pairing that you like. Because if we are, if we are from God, if we have overcome the world, if, if the Holy Spirit lives in us and is greater than Satan, then loving the brethren, loving each other in this room, this is non-negotiable. It's not optional. It just is. That this begs the question. What does the Apostle, G, the Apostle John mean when he says God is love? How does he define it? What is love in this context? And how are we called to be and to do love? He says in verses 9 and 10, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Since a foundational, essential part of God's being is love, there is absolutely no way he could hide or suppress that attribute. So John's appeal for mutual love between Christians is not just based on God's character, but it's also tied to his historical gift of sending his only son, Jesus Christ, to be our atonement. You see, the incarnation of Jesus Christ is the glorious manifestation, the visible expression, 
the gift of God's love for his people in history. And the manifestation of this kind of love, it's, it's sacrificial in nature because God loved us before we were even able to reciprocate that kind of love. As verse 19 says, which is even beyond our text, it says, we love because he, he first loved us. Paul picks up on this theme. He emphasizes this in Romans chapter 5. He states, For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, then while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In these verses, this passage, both the apostles John and Paul, they highlight the crux, the linchpin of the gospel that the incarnation of Jesus Christ is the bridge between truth and love. And Jesus willingly sacrificed himself for us, and now we live through him, and we can know truth, and we can love one another. But what does this mutual love look like between the brethren, between you and I? We'll look at verses 11 and 12. John says again, Beloved, if, you so, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. The key idea of what mutual love looks like is expressed in the phrase, if God so loved us, we also ought. We also ought. Three little words. We also ought. You see, the we also ought, it implies that we have an obligation to love one another, which we do because of the manner in which God first loved his own people. And this obligation to love one another should resemble the same kind of sacrificial love demonstrated to us through the gift of Jesus Christ. While it is unlikely that any one of us here will actually have to die for one another, whether for someone in this room or maybe for a family member or a friend or a coworker, it's the same kind of sacrificial love that should be demonstrated. This is what John is referring to. However, sacrificial love is also demonstrated through acts of mercy and kindness, whereby we give of our time and our talents and treasures in ways, though, that, that actually hurt us Though unpleasant to think about, Christian mutual love is expressed through sacrifice, not surplus. So if your brother or sister has a need, the Apostle John's evaluative rubric is we also ought, not can we or should we. And within the early context of this chapter, telling the truth can be an act of sacrificial love, particularly if we risk losing a relationship as a result of testing the spirits. After all, telling the truth is something within our own culture now that is deemed hostile and is actually even considered an act of violence. However, the point of telling truth and love, according to Paul in Ephesians, is this. We grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. You see, the Holy Spirit, he takes our pursuit of truth of mutual love, and he uses, it, he uses it to sanctify us, to make us holy. 
he sanctifies us. And this is exactly what John emphasizes when he says, if we love one another, God abides in us, and his love, it is perfected in us. Of course, this spirit of truth, this spirit of love is not only focused inwardly toward the brethren, toward one another, but is also supposed to be focused outwardly to the world. And this leads us to our third and final point, and that's this. Because we have been given the Holy Spirit, as Christians we are called and equipped to confess that Jesus is the Son of God to a watching world. In verses 13 through 15, John says, By this we know that we abide in him, and he in us, because he has given us of his Spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. For John, for the other apostles, they were the primary eyewitnesses of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And they were uniquely qualified to speak about what they had seen and what they had experienced. And what they had seen, what they experienced, was so mind-blowing, so earth-shattering, that they could not keep it to themselves. They traveled to the far reaches of the Mediterranean world. As the late theologian John Stott wrote, he says, No one has been to the cross and seen God's immeasurable and unmerited love displayed there and can go back to a life of selfishness. This is why the Apostle Paul and his companion Silas are blamed by the Jewish citizens of Thessalonica for having turned the world upside down. In Acts 17, the world is upside down as they went from town to town, synagogue to synagogue, and public square to public square to preach Christ crucified. And though none of us were there to witness firsthand Jesus Christ's incarnation, we have their testimony. We have the testimony of the apostles. And like them, we also have the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. And because we have these two things, my friends, Jesus says the following to us, as recorded in John chapter 20. Blessed are those who have not seen and have yet believed. My friends, we too, we have been called and equipped to confess that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and the Savior of the world. And like the apostles, we too have been called and equipped to turn the world upside down. Because we have been given the spirit of truth, we have been given the spirit of love, and we can do this by the power of the Holy Spirit who indwells in each of you who calls and confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior. We can test the spirits. We can love one another. And there is no turning back for us either. And that, my friends, is the glorious grace of the gospel. Let us bow our heads for prayer. Father, we come before you because you have given us your spirit. You've given us your word. And we are from you because you loved us and you are in us. We thank you that you did not leave us as orphans, but that you left your indwelling spirit that we may be able to test the spirits and love one another and profess our faith to each other and to a watching world. We pray, Lord, that we would do that. Equip us and strengthen us to do that. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.